Good evening. My name is Lauren. I'm a deacon here at Mercy View. Tonight we will be in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for sharing that with us and leading us in prayer for the Hoyts and, and the Moors, of course. Um, well, hey, uh, like you said, my name is Corbin King, and uh, it's my privilege to proclaim God's word with you. So let's dive in. Well, recently, our family made a run to the local library and uh, picked up a couple books for our son, Bear. And one of the books that we got was a book called Best the Barn Stand Strong. It's a riveting little book about a barn built by this farmer. And uh, basically, it tells the story of all the milestones that Best the Barn experiences with the farmer. The birth and the death of different animals, weddings, the whole gamut. It's a sweet little story. Until one day, the farmer sadly passes. And in his place, a younger farmer comes along and buys the land. And with him comes new technology and ideas and a new barn. A barn completely made of metal and all these different special materials. And so Bess gets sidelined and begins to collect dust. And her paint's fading. And she's not getting any use at all. That is until one day, a tornado comes through. And all the animals at first are, of course, sheltering in this nice, fancy barn until suddenly the storm completely deconstructs it into a pile of metal and animals have to take off on a beeline to Bess. And there, Bess withstands the entirety of the storm and saves the animals. So, what's the difference, right? Well, Bess was built to last. She had a great foundation. Regardless of appearances, she was actually one that could protect and save the animals in the long run. And this evening, we're going to continue in our series, uh, week two of By the Book, Scripture as Worship Center, where we're learning about liturgy and why we do liturgy the way we do it. Liturgy is a word that comes from an old Greek word that means public work. And so what we do on Sunday is the public work of Christ and his church for the world. And our topic this evening is why we read scripture every time we gather. And not just before the sermon, but throughout the entire time. Why do we read so much scripture? And as Lauren read for us, we have 1 Timothy 4.13 as our starting point. So I'm going to read that again for us. And there, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. It's exhortation. To teaching. And so here Paul gives us a what, right? That we're to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture every time we get together, that from God's Word we might be exhorted and taught from God Himself. But to ever understand the what, we also have to ask the question, why? Right? Brad did that last week. We'll probably do it every week on every topic, but why? Why this thing? Why the public reading of the Bible? And help us answer the why, I want us to use this time together to examine two starkly different ways to approach the weekly gathering. Just like the comparison between Best the Barn and the New Barn that try to replace her, we're going to wrestle with, in our instance, which type of worship gathering truly leads to effective life change. And so the first perspective is about church growth that's driven by pragmatism. 
And we'll get into what that means. And the second perspective is centered on the glory of God and is driven by the public reading of his word during the gathering. And that's just it. What we want to do is look at what's driving the weekly gathering. What is the motor or the engine that moves it forward, that's directing everything we do and why we do it? And it's our conviction here that it's to be the word read aloud throughout the entire gathering that's to drive and direct our worship. And the goal in all of this is not to speak disparagingly about other churches or people. No, it's actually for us as a church family to wrestle with what is most important when we come together. How can we make the best use of this time? Because at the end of the day, we want to see people's lives changed by the gospel. And so not only that, but we also want to see our lives changed by the gospel, not just our weekly gatherings to be directed by the word, to be saturated by the word. But when we leave this place, our schedules, our weeks to be centered on God's word and led by it. And so it help us do just that to unpack these ideas. We're going to look at two different ideas. The first that we're going to tackle is man's limited power and performance. Man's limited power and performance. And second is God's unlimited power in speaking. So our first point, man's limited power and performance. So to set the table, we're going to look at two verses to be our starting point. And that's going to be from Matthew 4, verse 4, and Isaiah 40, verse 8. I'm going to read that for us, so don't feel like you have to turn there now. And starting in Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus tells us, that man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 40, verse 8, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So starting from Isaiah, have you ever thought about how much you have in common with flowers and grass? No? Yeah, me neither. But actually a lot, if you think about it. Because like them, we too were created. And what that tells us is we're not God. There's a distinction between who God is and what he can do, what he can accomplish, and us as created people. Like them, we can fall prey to weaknesses and eventually even meet our worst weaknesses, which is that we'll meet our end in death. Like them, we're finite and we're limited in what we can do or accomplish. This means that nothing is guaranteed for us. Nothing we do will always go according to plan. But God and his word endure forever. God and his word are steadfast and unchanging. Always perfect, always true. And that's true of us compared to God and his word. But what about the things in this world? Well, they too are similar. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus tells us uh, in a time in which he is in the wilderness, he's been fasting, and Satan comes along and is trying to tempt him to use his power selfishly for his own gain. And because he's been fasting, he's starving. And so Satan tells him, you know, why don't you turn those stones to bread? You know, eat that, be satisfied. And it might seem silly to point this out, but actually what Jesus says here has huge consequences. You see, what Jesus does in describing the bread is that he reveals to us the limitations of this world apart from God. Here's what I mean. 
There's nothing wrong with bread. Bread's a good thing, right? I'm probably too guilty of loving bread too much, right? So bread's good. It has nutritional value. It can fill you when you're hungry, but it has limitations. It can go stale or moldy or soggy. And when you eat it, what does it do? It turns to waste, all right? So bread's a good thing. It serves a purpose, but it cannot serve anything that can give you what God can give you, right? It cannot save you or sustain you like God and his word. And that's true of everything in this world. Many aspects of our lives where we look to produce or create can only be so effective, right? Like our own ingenuity, like when we do church and the weekly gathering, what do we plan and think to do can only be so effective. But God and his word are unlimited in their power and what they can accomplish. And that's what Isaiah and Matthew are trying to show us here. And so what I'm trying to get at here is really just a healthy dose of reality, right? That we're people, right? We're, we can only do so much. And that's okay. That's good for us to accept, especially when it comes to the work of ministry. What an incredible privilege we have to do gospel ministry, right? That God invites us into and calls us to gospel ministry with him, the most important work any of us can be involved in, where God is saving people from death to life. It's the greatest work any of us can be a part of. And yet, in seeking to be effective in this and try and reach as many people as possible or do things with excellence, sometimes it's our limited ways of thinking that can get in the way. In my introduction, I mentioned the struggle of wanting to grow and make an impact by becoming too dependent on something called pragmatism. Now, in church circles, pragmatism simply means if something's working and it's producing results, it must be good. Therefore, we should pursue that further. No questions asked. It's a results-driven way of doing things instead of being directed by long-established beliefs or teaching. And as a result, what's being measured, like in a church context, is the number of people that attend churches. Because Christianity, ever since Jesus gave the Great Commission, is a movement of God about multiplication, right? And that's a good thing. We want as many people as possible to hear and believe the gospel and experience eternal life with God. That is a goal. But it's also easy to see how growth can become a fixation and a distraction. If we're growing numerically, we must be doing something right. And so the things that we're doing, we should make that our focus, our goal, and keep improving upon that. And so whatever it is that we're doing that brings more people in, that becomes sort of the main idea, right? That's the purpose. This is something that really became prevalent in the 1970s in the church. This is a time when church attendance was declining more and more every decade in a place that was known as a Christian nation. This is also a interesting time in history where we have things like Watergate and the Vietnam War. Uh, we're coming on the heels of the sexual revolution and the civil rights movement. And so as a country, we're starting to become more skeptical and unsure of institutions like the church. And so to help bring in more people and try and especially get the unchurched to feel welcome again, people began to think and ask questions like, are we too formal and cold in how we do church? Are we outdated in our music or our carpet? 
What do we need to change? It was a plant churches in places like movie theaters. And instead of doing an old hymn on an organ with Grandma Betty, we've got contemporary worship music with a more professional production. Sermons became shorter and more practical and informal. And none of that's bad. I mean, I would say those might have been necessary changes, good things. And in fact, they were successful in bringing in the unchurched. And these churches began to see more and more unbelievers come, hear the gospel, and believe. So this is good. However, the small amount of unbelievers that would come was not as, you know, it failed in comparison to the large swaths of Christians that also liked these changes and began to come as well. And so these churches that were, you know, just trying to see more people hear the gospel began to grow exponentially faster than they intended. And this led to an entire movement. Like the gold rush or the oil boom, there was a church growth boom. And from it came conferences, consultants, speakers, books, And instead of, you know, the word being the main driver of what we do, why we do it, now the weekly gathering would be driven by things like metrics and studies. And that would determine how service should be structured, what it would consist of, how long should it last. Now, I say all this to get at a main point right here, which is in the early 2000s, the church that was likely the leading voice in this movement wisely and humbly decided to test and figure out, are they really effective at making disciples? And so they hired a third party to come in and interview their entire church. I think this was over the course of a year, year and a half. And what they found surprised them. It wasn't their strategies or their programs that led to spiritual growth and maturity. Actually, the answers that they got was that people that were committed to following Christ had an intimate relationship with the Lord and were actively engaging God's word, those were the people that were growing deeper in their walk with Christ. In fact, 25% of the church said they felt stalled or stagnant in their faith. And more than half of that group was considering leaving because of it. And so the pastor realizing this is like, we got to change something. And they continued to be innovative, but they made sure more than anything, they would be a church centered on teaching the Bible and Christ-centeredness. Here's why this matters. Whatever we do on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, whenever you meet, it produces fruit. Always. And that might surprise you because you think, well, no, no, no. It's about what we need to do to produce fruit, right? As if you can't produce fruit. But the truth is we are always producing fruit, whether it's good or bad. So the question is not what produces fruit, but what kind of fruit are we producing when we come together? Trevin Wax is a vice president for the North American Mission Board, and a couple years ago, he wrote this great article for the Gospel Coalition on pragmatism. And here's a little nugget of uh, wisdom he pointed out. He says, the American church has a tendency to fast forward to the what brings fruit question without having firmly established what true fruitfulness is, right? Right? And so for us, what we need to remember and take to heart and make our goal, right, our focus, is that for the Lord, what pleases him most is not a large room full of people or a small church with the most amazing audio and visual production. 
or cultural relevancy or metrics. What pleases the Lord and brings him joy is a group of people, whatever size, that loves God. And they desire to learn and obey his word. A people that resembles Christ and treasures him above all other things. Pastor Brad the other day shared something with me. I think he heard at a recent Acts 29 gathering. And uh, this little piece of wisdom was this. He said, it's okay that churches have an expiration date. I'd never thought of that. What do you mean? Here's what he means. In God's kindness and sovereignty, he chooses to plant a community of believers and through them does a beautiful work of eternal significance. But that group eventually dies out, right? Just like the flowers of the grass, like all of us, people die out. And God then does it again through their children or through a new people in a new place. This is how God works, right? The church will not fail. It will not time out. It will not die. The local churches do. It's just part of it because we're finite. But again, it's not ultimately up to us. And what we need to remember from the wisdom of Isaiah and Jesus in the book of Matthew is that we cannot only live off our ingenuity and rely too much on the things of this world to accomplish anything. What we really need is the power and presence of God when we come together. We are finite, but God is infinite and all-powerful. And the key to unlocking the power and experiencing the beauty and glory of God in the weekly gathering is turning to his word and throughout the gathering, hearing it proclaimed over us. And that brings us to our second point this evening, which is God's limitless power in speaking. When I was a junior in college, I interned for one of the largest churches in the state. And truthfully, had a really great experience. I made a lot of great friends, lots of memories. It was the same summer I got married, so it was a sweet season. However, this, you know, was a time for me to try and get experience. I was willing to, you know, try it wherever. I heard this was a conservative church. It was evangelical. So, you know, I was on board. I was happy to do it. But when I got there, I realized that it was a very pragmatically driven church. And one way that that played out for me as someone leading the fifth and sixth grade ministry was that all day I was playing with kids, doing things with them, helping them, you know, doing ministry with kids. And it was great, but that was the entire day. Not once were we allowed, if you're an intern, to actually go to the weekly gathering. And so I was missing out on how that ministers to us. And I was getting burned out and exhausted. And so as a solution, Olivia and I decided on Sunday evenings we would go to a different church. And so there's a church I'd never been to but heard, again, really good things. You never know what you're going to get till you go. And I'm not being dramatic, but what I experienced at this church on Sunday evenings was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. Like Mercy View, someone got on stage and read from Scripture a call to worship telling us about the glory and beauty of God and what he is doing in the world. I'd never heard that before. This was followed by the team singing old hymns with rich scriptural references, but in a more modern, artsy way, like King's Kaleidoscope, if you know that group. 
I never heard music like that. Then someone came up and led a time of confessing sin, which kind of freaked me out at first. But then I realized how profound that was. And this was followed by the greatest part, which is the assurance of pardon and hearing the gospel every week. It was incredible. This would then be followed by someone reading a passage, it being preached, and then scripture leading weekly communion, and then a scriptural benediction to send their people out and encourage them. So Brad said this last week, but I want to hit on it too. It's not new or a new iteration or a new invention of how to do church. This is actually a timeless way that the church has been done. And like 1 Timothy 4.13, this was a church deeply devoted to the reading of Scripture and letting Scripture minister to the hearts of the people gathered. From that point on, Olivia and I knew we would not want to be a part of a church unless it looked like that when they got together. And to be honest, it's hard to even put into words how I felt every week leaving those gatherings. And so instead, I'm going to let the psalmist who authored Psalm 119, verses 25 to 32, speak for me. And this is a passage that does a great job representing how God's word began to heal me and change me every week. And I would encourage all of you this week just to spend time in Psalm 119 and see how God will renew and strengthen your love and appreciation for his word, how it begins to change your life. There the inspired psalmist writes, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness, and I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your testimonies and your commandments when you enlarge my heart. If we're honest, the parts of this passage that are describing the struggle of life, this is often how we feel during the week. And people may not know it outwardly, but you may be coming on a Sunday feeling just like this, with your soul's clinging to the dust, meaning you are humbly coming as people carrying the weight of sin and the struggles of life on your backs. And it's weighing you down toward the earth, so much so that your soul feels like it's melting away, which for me, that feels like anxiety, right? Eating at me inside. But notice what the psalmist says about God's word. It gives him life. And he wants nothing more than more and more of God's word in his life, that he might have more of life. In fact, look how it ends versus how it begins. He goes from being way down to the earth to running freely wherever God's voice is leading him. Being crushed to being free. That's what God's word did to him. So what is it about the Bible that's so powerful and life-changing? Well, we read this last week, but it's true again this week, and that is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That means when Scripture is read, God is literally speaking to us. 
And this is especially powerful when it's being read over us and we're receiving it. Because when God speaks, things happen. Yeah? Through speaking, God created the earth and the universe. Through speaking, God raises people from the dead. Through speaking, God brings down nations and raises up entire other nations. Through speaking, God heals people of lifelong illnesses. And through speaking, God forgives people of their sins and wipes it all away. That's why we read so much scripture every week. Because God is at work through his word, bringing people to life and continuing to fill them up with the joy of eternal life through his word. And as we know from our whole series on Romans, right, in Romans 10, 17, we're told that faith comes by what? That's right, hearing. It's not from what we do, how talented we are, how good the music sounds, how great the ambiance is. It's by hearing and by hearing the word of God. In pragmatic worship, reading scripture either gets reduced or sometimes pushed to the side altogether, and we suffer for it. And when it comes to the weekly gathering, we can feel like those lyrics from the old song that says this, As a deer panteth for water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. God's word quenches our spiritual thirst. When scripture gets read aloud, we get more of God and we hear his voice directly speaking to us in our troubled hearts. And we're reminded by God himself personally speaking to us that there is hope for us. Yeah? That he is in control when life feels chaotic. And that we can actually have life with him here and now in this present moment when we come feeling weighed down by sin. Where else are you going to hear such good news? At work? No, of course not. Where at work, the bottom line is king, and you are judged based on if you're worth it. From entertainment? Of course not. Entertainment kind of just gets us through life. Maybe escape it. Doesn't tell us the hope that redeems it. From the news? Nope, the news is only good for telling us what's wrong with the world, not what God is doing to make it right. And so it's God's word that is our only true source of constant hope, regardless of our circumstances. Now, getting back to motives for a second, all this is not to say that there's anything wrong with a desire to reach more people or wanting to do things with excellence or playing modern worship music, right? Those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with pastors reading studies and learning how to be more effective and reach the city and context that God planted them. It's just that those different things can't be what we give our entire focus to and put our hope in. And I know this for a fact, for all of us, right? That Sunday gatherings are not supposed to feel like performing a job for our pastors or for any of you to help put on Sunday and make it happen. It's not supposed to suck you dry of your energy, of your joy. This is a time, a sacred time, where you come to be ministered to and made alive in Jesus Christ. 
It can be easy for us to believe it's the skill of the preacher or the worship band or the experiences that we create that are the X factors that accomplish things for God's kingdom. But what we need more than anything is not a worship experience. What we need is to experience God, to have an encounter with him, be changed by him as his word is read over us and we personally hear him speak to us as his word is read aloud. J.I. Packer was a wonderful theologian who deeply loved Jesus. And one of the greatest influences on his love for Christ were the Puritans. And in his book dedicated to Puritan theology called A Quest for Godliness, Packer had this to say about the Puritan worship gathering. He said that the end to which all church order was the glory of God in and through salvation of sinners and the building up of lively congregations in which people met God. Isn't that such an explosive statement? That people met God? That from proclaiming the scripture's message of the gospel and making that central in everything that we do, churches were made alive, right? They weren't going through the motions. They had eternal life, feeling them, pushing them forward, exciting them. Because in that time, in that moment, when they were together, they were actually meeting with God. As Jonathan Edwards once said, there's a stark difference between a man who knows about honey and a man who loves honey, yeah? It's for us the difference between doing church in relation to God versus actually experiencing and relishing in our real relationship with God as he speaks to us through his word. And because God has gifted us his word, we ought to prioritize reading and listening to his word every time we get together with the overarching goal that we would rehearse and celebrate the greatest instance of God giving us his word when the father gave us his son. When the word that was with God and was God came and dwelt among us and took on flesh. And what did he do when he was with us? He spoke to us and he's still speaking to us. And when he speaks, he's not condescending or spiteful. No, he has deep love and compassion for his lost people, a people that he came to die for. There's an instance out of John chapter 4 where Jesus encounters a woman at a well. And this is a woman who has a history of broken relationships with different men. And in that conversation, this history comes out. And I imagine she was a little bit embarrassed And so as a defense mechanism or a deflection, she begins to shift the conversation away from herself and talk about religion. And there she begins to speculate with Jesus, where do you say is the best place to worship? Our people say it's on this mountain, but your people say it's at this place. Where can you really experience and encounter God? And what what does Jesus tell her? Jesus says it's ultimately not about the location or the rituals. It's about the real power and presence of God and the truth of his word. It's the true worship is done in spirit and truth. So much so that even in that moment was actually an example of just that, that that woman actually was encountering God and was in fact the first person Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. 
You see, in that moment, he does not ridicule her for her sexual sin or give her a list of demands that would only lead to further spiritual dryness and deadness inside. Actually, what he does is offer her what? The gift of living water. That he might satisfy her in a way that she would never feel dry or empty. And this gift of living water is the forgiveness of her sins and a start at a new life. And through that, a real relationship with the living God. Unlike all of her other relationships that led to further brokenness, this was a relationship that would give her life everlasting. And this is just one example of how great our God is and the power of his word when we come face to face with it. His word is not meaningless words on a page, but his word is himself. He is the word, alive, powerful, and desiring to directly tell you how much he loves you and is going to redeem you. That's true for all of us when we come to the gathering. We meet here every Sunday. Whatever we bring with us, whatever burdens we have on our back, whatever we're carrying with us, he desires to meet with us and speak to us that he loves us, that there is forgiveness for your sins and eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. Something that we need to hear every single week. And I'll close our time together with this one last powerful thing that Jesus said. It's actually how he closed his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. There Jesus describes that the people who hear God's word and do it are akin to a wise man that builds a house on a foundation of rock. And that those who hear God's word and choose not to do it are like a foolish man that builds their house on the sand. And Jesus tells us that the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew against and beat against both houses. And it was the house built on the rock that stood while the house built on stand fell. And Jesus tells us that great was the fall of it. So what will you build your life around? And upon what foundation shall we build this church? Will it be the reading and following and leading of God's word, or will we trust our own efforts and striving? Let's pray.